Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, January 25th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we're taking a look at a couple of recent IPOs in the finance space, along with a couple of upcoming IPOs. We'll answer a listener question. We'll wrap it up with one to watch. Joining me this week, certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Just great. I'm excited for our IPO chat. We haven't done this yet. Yeah, yeah, this will be fun. We've we've got a couple of companies that just IPO'd we're going to talk about. Uh, then we're going to talk about a couple of companies that you have on your radar, companies that are going to be IPOing soon, but haven't IPO'd yet. We'll get your take on what those businesses are all about. But let's go ahead and start with the uh, the two recent IPOs here, and, and I, th- I think both very interesting businesses. You know, I've I've, I've certainly uh, looked at both, and um, we'll go ahead and start here with one probably many haven't heard of. Uh, it, it's Dreamfinders Homes, ticker is DFH, and this is a company just went public last week. Uh, small cap. It looks like you know two two billion dollar market cap. So it's a really a small company. But talk to us a little bit about Dreamfinders. What does this company do, and how does it make money? Yeah, so they are a home builder, as we said. They operate mostly in the Sun Belt region. Um, just to name a couple of their biggest markets, they're based in Jacksonville. Um, other big markets are Orlando, Denver, and uh, and DC. Believe it or not, right near you guys. That's their only kind of northeast market. If you're you consider DC the northeast, I don't know. Um, you know, given that I'm from South Carolina and moved up here from Georgia, yeah, I kind of do feel like this is the Northeast, but I know most people here try to consider it the South still. So we're we're going to give the benefit of the doubt and say we're still in the South. Right. But that's the only market that I, it's only one of their major markets that isn't in that Sunbelt area, if, <laughs> yeah. if, if that makes sense. But anyway, yeah. they were founded in 20, or 2008. Um, like you said, they recently IPO'd. They are the 11th largest private home builder. So they're not a giant, they're not a market leader or anything like that, which that's okay. Um, They've sold about 9,100 homes since 2008. So in their 12 year history, 9,100 homes. Uh, They went, they IPO'd at a price of $13. It appears that the market likes them because they're trading for about 21 as I write this. Um, They are, interestingly, they are backed by a company that we cover a lot on the show, Boston Omaha. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've mentioned that Boston Omaha has a bunch of minority investments in kind of adjacent businesses. This was one of them. So Boston Omaha owned about six percent of the, the of Dreamfinders pre-IPO. So this was a nice little windfall for them. Um, but for the Dreamfinders business, the reason I really like them and wanted to bring them to people's attention is because they have a very asset light business model for a home builder. A lot of home builders, like for example, I'm in a Dr. Horton house right now. This that's that's who built my house. What they bought all of the land in my neighborhood, developed it into homes, and one by one sold them off. It took them about five years from start to finish to do it. That's a capital-intensive way to be a home builder, to buy a giant plot of land like that, develop a whole neighborhood, and hope that people buy them. Dreamfinders kind of uses a more an asset light business model, meaning that they, they own options on land, meaning that they have the right to buy land, but they don't actually complete the purchase of the land that they're building on until they have a buyer lined up, which is a really it, it's it's a really capital light business model. The return on equity was over thirty percent last year because of this. Most home builders are in the teens, 
Um, so it's it's a really interesting business, really rapid growth right now. They grew their revenue uh, 30% year over year through the first nine months of 2020. Uh, I know 2020 wasn't really a typical time in the housing market, um, but they have grown impressively just for the past few years. So they're one of the fastest growing home builders in the country. They're not a market leader yet, but I could see them getting toward that direction. Um, and I, I took a look at them a while ago when I, I heard that that was Boston Omaha's home builder uh, investment and really liked them. And I was really glad to see they went public. And I, I'm not one for playing in the IPO market all that much. I think the last I, the last recent IPO I bought was Lemonade. Um, but so yeah, and that was the first one in a couple of years. So I might wait till kind of see the price normalize, see till we get a quarter or two worth of earnings um, to really value the company on. And I want to see how they do in a market that's not 2020. Right. <laughs> like, we have all <laughs> yeah. their growth numbers from 2020, but you know, take that with a grain of salt. You know, Matt, I, I, when I see these home home builders, and I mean, home building is it's a fascinating market, and it's one where it really seems to favor uh, scale. Right. It definitely seems to favor the bigger players in the space. And so you mentioned Dr. Horton, for example, a 28-some-odd billion-dollar market capitalization. I mean, that's a company that's been doing it for a while, obviously knows what they're doing. Um, I mean, what is with DreamFinders? I mean, this is a small company. This is a $2 billion market cap business. Uh, they don't have a, a ton of financial resources at their disposal, at least not yet. So, I mean, what are the things that you're keeping your eye on to make sure they're they're able to to continue taking that step to the next level? What 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 are the things we need to be watching to, to see this company really to know that they're able to take that step uh, and, and compete with the bigger players in the space? Well, they, they've grown a lot through acquisition. That's, um, they're now one of the private home builder leaders in the Charlotte area because of that big acquisition they made last year, for example. So growing like through acquisition costs money. You want to see that they have a reliable and relatively inexpensive source of funding, which they don't have yet. Um, they funded their last acquisition by getting a term loan from Boston Omaha, actually. So Boston Omaha was a equity and debt investor. Um but they were, they, it was like a one-year term loan. They paid something like 14% interest on the loan. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, they're going to pay it off with the proceeds from the IPO, it looks like. So <clears throat> So right now, it's not a big deal. But you want to see them kind of establish a better way to, to fund their growth. And that'll come as they grow, um, you know, as they can really prove their earnings out and things like that. Um, you know, that'll come. But I, that's that's one thing I'm watching. You mentioned, I mean, you're absolutely right. Scale is everything in home building. Um, it's not a terribly high margin industry usually, especially on the like lower to mid range of the market, which is where DreamFinders tends to operate um, in the in the mid range uh, homes. You know, for like starter homes, the reason that you haven't seen a ton of supply and there's such supply constraints is they really haven't been economical for home builders to make. Um, so and I mean they're they're very dependent on things like lumber prices, which have been high lately. And um, you want you want to see the the business scale as they scale, it'll get more efficient. So that's that's really what I'm watching. And like I said, um, I love the growth through acquisition model because home building, aside from the Dr. Hortons of the world, is a pretty fragmented market. Um, you know, there's a lot of smaller regional home builders that that they could go after. So I love that strategy, but I'd like to see them be able to finance it a little more efficiently. Because paying 14% interest is not the way to go. <laughs> no, I can imagine not. Uh, well, speaking of 
buy now and pay later because, I mean, hey, that's essentially what <laughs> buying a house is, right? You're just paying that thing off for the rest of your life pretty much, or at least until you sell it. Uh, Affirm Holdings is another company you have on your radar. Recent IPO as well just went public at the beginning of the year. Uh, it, it, it's a business we've talked about a little bit before uh, together. It, it's certainly one that is starting to get a little bit more exposure here in our foolish universe and we get a lot of questions regarding that buy now, pay later opportunity and, and, and questions regarding Visa and MasterCard. And is this something that uh, investors in those businesses should be concerned about? But let's talk a little bit about a firm. And I mean, this is, I mean, just went public. I mean, this is closing in on a $30 billion market cap. The market is receiving this company very, very well. And, and I do understand to a degree why. Um, I, I think we're still kind of learning about the buy now, pay later market and exactly how how big of an opportunity that really is. But let's talk a little bit about Affirm. What does this company do and how does it make money? Well, so they're, Affirm's goal is to make the credit process transparent, easy, and fair. Um, a lot of people have used Affirm's services without knowing it, especially if you're a Peloton customer. Um, they do buy now, pay later financing, which is basically a, a fancy way of saying installment plans. Um, so if you go to check out on, say, walmart.com or target.com or any of those big websites, you might see a button that says pay over pay X amount a month for six months instead of you know paying in full today. A lot of times that's a firm. That's what they do. They, they offer that option to merchants. Uh, it could be zero interest financing. In some cases, they have to pay interest. It depends on the particular partnership, but they offer buy now, pay later plans. Peloton is by far their biggest customer, 28% of their revenue. Um, so, they, I mean, a lot of that has to do with, we mentioned 2020 is not a normal, was not normal. Um, you know, everybody in the world was buying a, a, a Peloton bike. It was like, <laughs> it was like a Sega Genesis when I was younger. Like, like every household wanted one of those in their house. Yep. Um, I bet to the, you know, the left or right of that piano behind you, there's a Peloton somewhere. No, 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 no. <laughs> there's no Peloton in this house, Matt. But if there were, it would be downstairs. My, my wife's into Pilates, so we have a lot of that equipment, and we have a treadmill downstairs. I think that's. I think I think we're about tapped on exercise equipment for now, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. But you know, I mean, Peloton could not keep up with sales in 2020. So the point is that that is a big risk going forward to have you know 28 percent of your revenue tied to a company who just had a fantastic year because of the pandemic. The the you know the big unanswered question is what happens after the pandemic. I mean, a firm has a lot. They have 6,500 partners, including Walmart, Target, Best Buy. Um, what's it? Uh, there's there's a lot of big companies that partner with with a firm to offer this option because a lot of buyers want that. A lot of buyers don't want a credit card that's going to charge them 20% interest. There's a big, big market for people who don't want to pay all the money up front, but also don't want to pay a ton of interest. That's a big market. Sure. Um, so, I mean, it, they've had a lot of success with this, and that's why the market's so excited. Um, I mean, they, they make money through their merchant partnerships. You know, they, They're not doing this for Peloton out of the goodness of their hearts. Yeah, Pe yeah. Peloton is paying them. Yeah, I mean, um, and that's what I saw. I mean, it was, they they earn you know they earn money from the merchant. They get that fee uh, when they convert the sale. I mean, they get the interest income on simple interest loans. But like you said, I mean, it's it's not necessarily always going to be some form of of high interest debt. I mean, that's that's really 
what they're trying to steer away from in order to offer folks uh, an alternative to higher interest credit cards. Um, right it, now, I could go apply for a credit card that had 0% interest for 18 months or something like that. But that's an extra step. It's a little confusing. The payments are tougher to keep track of. If I want to you know, buy a, a TV at Best Buy right now and want, want 0% interest, I could either you know, open you know, Citibank's website, apply for a new credit card, wait for the credit card to come in the mail, then buy the TV, <laughs> or I could just go to my Best Buy shopping cart and click on the pay over six months button yeah. and be done with it. Yep. <laughs> so. Well, and so you, you, to your point there in regard to the, the market opportunity, it really does feel like this is a it feels like this is a service that is really geared towards younger consumers. And it is. and I think that's a good thing, particularly when I when I see the data. I mean, it really is clear that younger consumers, I mean, we're talking about folks between 18 and 34 years old. I mean, these are consumers who are really more willing to trust their financial services with with tech related companies as opposed to 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 the 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 old bank relationship that that perhaps we grew up on right i mean it, it it's changing a little bit right you're getting these these tech companies these fintech companies that are partnering with banks in order to to be able to offer these types of financial services and consumers are feeling more trusting of those types of tech companies feeling like maybe they're a little bit they're looking out more for their for their best interest so i mean it feels like to me a lot of these companies, whether it's a firm or even Lemonade, uh, they're really uh, homing in on that that trust factor, right? Knowing that they they have that that in with that younger consumer, and it, it really is all just about doing the right thing for their demographic. Yeah, I mean, one millennials of which I am one of the older examples. I mean, millennials are people like my age and like ten years younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a few things that you need that, that investors should know about the millennial generation. Like you said, they don't trust traditional banks. There are exceptions, but in a lot of cases, they don't trust trust the the establishment financial financial institutions. Um, they, this is why Robinhood and things like that are are such big deals. You know, they're they're companies made by millennials for millennials. They're looking out for their interests. You know, millennials are anti fee. They don't want to pay fees or interest. Any any of that, they want their money to go toward purchases that are going to go into their pocket. If I'm paying two thousand, they're willing to pay two thousand dollars for a Peloton bike, but that's all they want to pay. They're not willing to put hundreds of dollars in in their in their credit card company's pocket to do it. And number three, millennials want things to be easy. They don't want that. Like I said, I could get a credit card that has zero percent interest for eighteen months right now. But it's extra steps. It's it makes the process hard. I have to. They want things to be easy. You know, if I could click a button and finance a purchase over six months, why am I going to go through the, the trouble of opening a new credit card? To, you know, to do it. So it, it's it's a it's th- those three factors really are playing are resonating with the, the millennial generation. Um, and I mean, not to no, no offense to the the Gen Xers like like yourself. <laughs> None taken. None taken. I know you're you're a tech savvy Gen Xer. Well, yeah, maybe, but that's yeah. I, I, that part of that, I guess, has to do with my job. Um, 
but, yeah, but I mean, I, I think you're onto something there in regard to millennials, and I think that's also something that carries on over uh, to you know, what Gen Z and, and I mean, like, or maybe millennials are Gen Z. No, those not Gen Z. No, no, but Gen Z is after millennials, but but yeah. millennials are are key because they are we're, we're entering our prime earning years right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, millennials. I, I don't want to quote the exact age range, but I know I know it ends at 38 because that's what I am. Uh, I want to say it's like 28 to 38 is is the millennial age range right now. So those are they're entering the prime years of their career, and they have money to spend, which is why they're such a crucial. That's why American Express's Platinum Card has been such a, a big hit because it re, the benefits like the Uber um, Uber credits, and right now they're doing a Gold Belly credit um, for to get food delivered, which I just used. It was really nice. Um, but things like that are really resonating with the millennial generation who has the money to spend and doesn't want to wait, doesn't want to pay fees, and doesn't really trust the, the establishment. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It certainly seems like they're onto something, and that's that's uh, whenever you see a business, I mean, they really uh, they they find that market opportunity, they, that that target demographic, and really cater. Uh, to that demographic, and then you have to you have to believe that that younger generations to follow, that'll be the standard that's set. And and I think that with a firm, they they definitely are onto something. And and we're seeing clearly with companies like Mastercard and Visa, um, the language in their calls, they are talking about this space as well. I mean, they are they are introducing these types of features into their business models as well. Um, so, so this is, is certainly something that a lot of companies are out there pursuing and it, and it feels like a firm, uh, is really one of the, one of the, the prime companies sort of blazing that trail, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, they are a leader, but before we move on, it's, it's important to note that they're not the only one in this space. Um, they were founded by one of PayPal's co-founders, which I thought Jason would like about this company. Sure. Um, but PayPal is launching its own buy now, pay later services, which are, you know, could be a problem. Yep. Um, just Square to, offers that to their merchants as well. I mean, Square, yeah, Square offers, offers that, that feature um, to their merchant to their merchant a, customers. Afterpay is another big one in that space. Um, so they're they're not alone. It's a big market opportunity, but you know, with any big market opportunity, they're not going to let one company have all the fun. Exactly. <laughs> You're going to see a lot, you know a lot of the established players like the PayPal's and Squares of the world try to get in on the action. Yep. Yep, that makes sense. Well, Matt, let's talk about a couple of companies that haven't gone public yet, but their IPOs are uh, impending, I guess is the best word to use. Uh, Coinbase, uh, this is an interesting business just based on what they do. I mean, this is your favorite part of the financial sector, right? Cryptocurrency. I mean, I know that you're just a total... I'm just kidding. Well, well, before we get into this whole segment, I want to say just because we're talking about these two companies doesn't necessarily mean I'm planning on buying the IPOs. Right. And that's a good point to make. This is this is, uh, this is is not advice uh, to invest in these businesses. We're giving you a little bit more of an understanding of what these businesses are and why folks are, are uh, paying close attention to these IPOs. Um, and, and, and I mean, beyond, anyone who's listened to us more than once knows that Bitcoin is not my favorite place to put money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about Coinbase. What? Because Coinbase is a cryptocurrency exchange. I mean, that's essentially what it is. Um, but but why does this IPO have you so, uh, why does this IPO have you uh, so intrigued? Well, the reason I'm really interested in it is because the cryptocurrency market is almost, it, it's almost at a trillion dollars in total market cap right now. A lot of the smaller coins are, are really gaining popularity. Crypt, or Coinbase is adding Additional options, they offer 43 different cryptocurrencies on their platform right now. Um, they have $90 billion in digital currency under management right now. 
Um, they're 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 a big deal. They've done four hundred fifty five billion dollars in volume since since they started, and and most of that is pretty recent. Um, there's over forty three million people who use Coinbase. So even if I'm not one of them, you know, some people like it. Um, the, the, what I'm really watching is how much the market's going to think this thing is worth. I uh, In December, a, a pretty good estimate put it at a $28 billion valuation, which given the size of the market seems cheap. But then when you, then another report a week or two later said it could be get up to $75 billion in an IPO valuation. So that's a that's a pretty big range for for estimates within a couple of weeks of each other, and these were all estimates done by like you know crypto experts. So it's not like one was by someone who's kind of down on the space and one's by someone who's really optimistic. That's a pretty big range. They filed a confidential uh, uh, IP or S one filing, so we don't know that much about how much their sales have been, how much their revenues growing, and with crypto prices kind of all over the map over the past few years. It's really tough to even put that into context when you do see the numbers. Like, if, you know, Bitcoin's like tripled over the past year. So if they say their revenues tripled, is that just because Bitcoin's gone up in price or is it because the, the platform's getting more and more attention? You know, so there, there's a lot of questions to be, to be asked. Um, and once this one is kind of a TBA in terms of when it's going to actually happen. They filed a. They did a confidential filing. We'll get some more information before um, before they go public. Airbnb did their confidential filing months before they went public, so we, we don't know the exact the exact timetable. It's it, it's entirely possible a SPAC could swoop in and and take them public at this point. But uh, one thing that I saw today that was really interesting: Coinbase is going to sell shares to its members before the IPO privately. They just announced they they um, sent out an email today. They're gonna send all their uh, members an email at, they said, noon Pacific time, which is 3 p.m. our time, um, detailing the process. So I'm going to I'm gonna be keeping an eye on that to see, because uh, to do that, they're going to have to say something about the valuation. I would imagine <laughs> like, so, yeah. Like, like they're not just going to say you're going to pay $20 a share. They're going to say what that's based on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm going to be paying attention to that. Coinbase is really on my watch list just because I have a lot more questions than answers is kind of the the key takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that'll definitely be an interesting one to, to learn about. And it does feel like, uh, it feels like the market would receive it probably well, just based on all the enthusiasm in cryptocurrency today. Uh, but, but yeah, as, as you mentioned, I mean, that just, there are a lot of questions in regard to the actual business and how it makes its money and what that is really all, uh, dependent on and and we we won't know that until more documents come out um i i know there's been chatter of this ipo uh, hopefully happening at some point early in february uh, again like you said it's really to be determined uh, we just don't know uh, yet but but certainly one to keep an eye on and and one that i'm certain will garner a lot of interest when it does finally go public Let's take a look at this other company that you, I love your description here. You call it a techie mortgage lender. Sounds right up my alley, man. Uh, but this is Home Point Capital. And uh, I, 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 I want you to tell me a little bit more about this because when I, when I see mortgage lender, uh, the first thing I think of is a company like Quicken Loans and Rocket. I mean, is this the same type of business as those? Kinda. They 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 rely more on their relationships with actual mortgage brokers um, to funnel them business. It's not really like a, you know, everyone knows who Quicken Loans is. Everyone knows what Rocket is. Everybody knows, you know, 
you know, everyone knows Bank of America offers mortgages, things like that. Um, so HomePoint, um, their ticker symbol, we already know it's going to be HMPT. They haven't exactly gone public yet. Um, so they are the third largest wholesale wholesale mortgage lender, um, which is, you know, goes through brokers and stuff like that. Uh, they're the 10th largest non-bank mortgage lender in the country, to give you an idea of their size. So, you know, if you exclude all the, the Bank of Americas and Wells Fargo's and stuff like that, including you know, Rocket Mortgage is not a bank. So they're they're in that group. They're they're the 10th largest non-bank mortgage lender in the country. The really the thing that really stood out to me is their is their growth. They've gone from doing $11 billion in mortgage volume in 2018 to $46 billion through the first three quarters of 2020. Now, 2020 was an exceptionally strong mortgage market. People were refinancing and and getting new mortgages like more than ever before. I think you and I both refinanced in 2020. Yeah, mm-hmm. we did. Um, but, but when your volume... And remember, so that's comparing a year to three quarters. When your volume jumps by that much, that's growth. That's not just because of the strong mortgage market. A um, couple interesting tidbits. Uh, they've already announced their pricing range for their IPO. Um, it's going to price between 19 and $21 a share. They didn't file confidentially. So we know a lot more about their growth than uh, Coinbase. So when, you, when a, a company announces their price range, that means expect the IPO soon. So I'd expect this in like the next week. Um. So they're selling 12 and a half million shares at those prices. And what's really interesting, normally when companies go public through the traditional route, it's to raise capital, right? So like, you know, if a company is selling a million shares at $20 a share, they're going to make $20 million in the IPO. It's a way to, you know, get some new capital in the door. A hundred percent of the shares being sold are from existing investors. The company's not getting a dime out of this IPO. They're cashing out. Yeah. So a lot of people are cashing out. Um, So, it's a really interesting company. I, like I said, the growth is really what stood out to me. And I mentioned the the num- the volume numbers, but their market share has grown from 0.7% of the mortgage market to 1.3% over the past couple of years. So that's a, almost doubling their market share in two years is a pretty impressive growth rate to me. Um, so that's what's going to, that's what's really prompting me to dig more into this company and see how the IPO shakes out. Like I said, they're pricing it between 19 and $21. If it jumps to $40 on day one, I'm probably out for the time <laughs> being. But if it, you know, if it, it's one that I'm keeping on my radar. Like I said, I'm not a huge IPO investor, and I only invest in an IPO if I'm super confident in it. Um, I, I, I think it's 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 early still, but I think I made the right call on Lemonade when I when I set it at like $40 a share. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I think it's, that's it's at about one sixty well. right now. <laughs> it's working out for you so far. So I so I use my IPO calls sparingly because right now on the show I'm one for one. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I every time I do it, I I, I hearken back to just a couple of lessons learned, and I mean, every every once in a while it works out. Um, I mean, I noted a little while back that the, the company I bought shares in most recently is Unity. Uh, Unity Software, and um, that's just a, a business that I've felt. Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, conviction in when it went public, but I, for every and Unity's working out okay for now. I mean, but for every Unity, there's also something like an Eventbrite where it just doesn't quite work out initially, and they got to learn kind of how to be a public company. You also you understand the t- the software and tech space a lot better than I do. I'm you know more of the real estate and and value investor type. Um, you're you're more inclined to to jump into the the software businesses, which I'm yeah. a little hesitant yeah. on. 
Maybe. Well, but, but either hey, way, hey, anyone who bought software business, I can't look, look at your track record. I really can't can't argue with you. <laughs> so far, it's working out. But you know, hey, listen, investing is a lifelong journey, as they say. Yeah, now Jason spends his time at the stables. He's done so well. <laughs> yeah, investing in animal medicine. Oh man, oh man. Um, okay, well, wow, yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye out on that, and I'm, I'm certain that is a business we will cover uh, here on the show going forward too. So excited about that, and excited to learn more about Home Point Capital as well. Okay, uh, Matt, let's uh, move on here to a listener question we got on Twitter the other day, and this comes from a listener with the handle at Foolery Joe. I like that. At Foolery Joe. And at Foolery Joe asks, question for the financials episode this week. Do bonds at their current yield have a place in a foolish portfolio? And I'm going to go straight to our resident certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. What do you think about this question here from Joe Foolery? I mean, the short answer is it depends. I mean, bonds are... are it's it's pretty well known if you have a, a good investing background. You know, bonds are are also known as fixed income investments. They're generally designed to produce a steady stream of income without much downside risk to your principal. The reason is because if you buy bonds at the at the bonds maturity, you get your your money back. If I pay a thousand dollars for a bond from a company, I'll get that back whenever the bond matures. The problem is right now interest rates are so low they're not paying much of anything, especially the high quality ones. If I buy a ten year treasury. You know, I mean, I'm I'm not going to get that much income out of it. <laughs> no. So I think it's they're, they're I think they're just over one percent right now on on ten year treasuries. It's better than it was, but um, but it's it's more of a question of how much preserving your capital is a priority. If you can afford to survive the ups and downs of a market, let's say you're in your 30s, like I am. And you have a few decades left till retirement. You can survive. You can, you know, watch your portfolio go up and down, knowing that you have a diverse collection of good businesses in there. You can have much less in bonds than you would say if bonds were yielding four or five percent. I know if bonds were yielding what they were, you know, in the nineties, I would have a whole lot more of them in my portfolio than I do right now. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think I think you would feel the same. You would agree with that statement. I would. Yeah. Absolutely. So it, it's it's a question of, but then again, if you're in your 60s right now, and the priority is, if you're almost at the finish line of retirement, your priority is preserving capital, bonds definitely still have a place. You're not going to get that type of capital preservation in the stock market. You're just not. Um, even if you're buying like blue chip dividend stocks, like think of like the most boring rock solid company you can. Jason, any, any names come to mind? Procter & Gamble. There you go. Look what they did in March of 2020. It was not preserving investors' capital to have money in Procter and Gamble in, in March of 2020. So it, it's if it's a question of capital preservation more than anything. If you're worried about if you have money that you need, fixed income or bonds still has a great place in your portfolio. Um, but if people people younger, I, I a lot of them are going pretty much almost 100 percent stocks right now. Right. And yeah. if you're if you're in your 30s and 40s, I really can't argue with that. If you're if you're doing it in a diverse, correct way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it is to I mean, you take into consideration things like if you're a homeowner, um, the equity that you have in your home. I mean, there are other uh, types of investments that can be a little bit more protective. I mean, I like how you sort of talk about the 
are you in the grow your wealth stage or the protect your wealth stage? Because that really does dictate a lot. And, and I will say, I mean, I reached into some of our resources here at The Fool and just looking at um, uh, some of the advice and rule your retirement <clears throat> and the team over there. And this is just sort of a roundabout way of looking at it. I mean, there is there is context and in, in, in whatnot to be considered here. But generally speaking, they're they're looking at this from the perspective more than ten years out from retirement. Maybe you have six percent of your portfolio in bonds. If you're within ten years of retirement, maybe you have about twenty percent of your portfolio in bonds. If you're in retirement, maybe you have closer to twenty five percent of your portfolio in bonds. Again, that's that's suggested. Guidance that doesn't take into consideration where all of your money is allocated. Again, I mean, if you have gold or real estate or anything else, um, it, just things to keep in mind. But but certainly, it feels like um, the closer you get to retirement, I mean, obviously, the more the more a a role they they potentially should play. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. So yeah, they they do have a, a position in your portfolio, but not as the income generators that they once were. Yeah. Yep. Well, Matt, before we finish up here for the week, let's dig into ones to watch. I've got a stock I'm watching, but what's the stock that you're watching this coming week? Well, last week we saw the bank earnings uh, come out. Uh, this week we're going to start seeing some real estate earnings, so I am watching Tanger Outlets. Ticker symbol is SKT. They report today after the close. So people who are listening to this, um, they, it might have reported by the time you're listening. Um, but so I'm I'm looking at that to get kind of a gauge of how retail performed in the fourth quarter, because a lot of these mall REITs, um, the real estate companies, they did pretty well in the third quarter because, you know, the pandemic wasn't gone, but it was you know the numbers were lower in the the summer and fall months than they are right now, so people were more eager to venture out. Um, so I'm curious to see how the winter season and how the holiday season treated retail. Um, uh, Tanger just recently announced they're bringing back dividends, which is pretty nice for a retail REIT. Um, so I want to see that their uh, their profitability really justifies that. Well, there you go. Yeah, I, I have uh, just one final um, bank that I'm really following here this coming week. Ameris Bank or uh, earnings are out on Thursday, and uh, you know, I mean, 2020 wasn't the greatest year for banks in general. I mean, I think the S and P uh, Financials uh, Index uh, that that was one of the few underperformers, right? That was one of the few uh, areas of underperformance in the market last year. It's feeling like maybe banks are set up for a little bit more success this year. Uh, Ameris, I mean, this is a small cap bank, right? So, I mean, it's kind of like that small cap home builder. I mean, banking is one of those businesses where size really does help. And, and Ameris is getting a little bit bigger via that acquisition of Fidelity uh, not all that long ago, uh, absolutely playing out on their uh, non-interest bearing deposits, becoming a greater percentage of deposits that's kind of like free money, essentially. Um, looking for trends that we saw here with, with the big banks, though, in loans growth versus deposits growth. I suspect we'll continue to see that deposit growth growth um, robust, whereas lending just kind of hit or miss right now. Um, and, and then really just just interested in their language for 2021, how they see this year shaping up. And, and I know that they had been uh, at least keeping an open mind towards uh, acquisitions here going forward. So any anytime you can get any uh, any any language regarding uh, potential deals too, that's always interesting. But uh, well-run bank dealing with a, a tricky a tricky time right now with interest rates. And um, as a shareholder, I uh, remain a happy and patient one. But we'll be looking for their earnings on Thursday. 
Uh, but Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, as always, man, I appreciate you taking the time to jump in here and uh, share your knowledge with our listeners. <laughs> of course. Till next time. Absolutely. And remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 